this summer as a church family, we jumped into the book of Psalms. But some of you might have been surprised already by what we've seen so far because we picked out some of the Psalms that are written in a minor key. Because I told you the Psalms are not just a place to go to learn great doctrine about God. They are. The Psalms are also where we have an opportunity to see expressed some of the emotions of the human heart that can be so filled with confusion and fear and anger and doubts at times as we live in this fallen, broken world. See, if all you know about the Psalms are a few little snatches of verses that show up on a greeting card, you might have been shocked by some of the things we've seen so far. But I'm not just picking out a few random two or three. I told you 53 of the 150 psalms are these kind of psalms in a minor key. So maybe you're wondering, why would God take up that much space in the Bible with so much of just raw human emotions? If you're here last week, then you remember, I hope, that I told you the psalms in a minor key have a really important purpose. They show us how to pray our emotions instead of pretending they don't exist or just sinfully venting them. Our world only gives us two options, pretend it's not happening or sinfully vent. I don't know whether you know this or not, God's not a big fan of pretending. Nor is he a fan of just sinfully venting. What you learn in the Psalms is that God shows us from his word what we should do. And that is to pray our emotions out loud in the presence of God. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 73. That's where we've been digging in. Psalm chapter 73. And you follow along as I read the entire Chapter again, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. Psalm chapter 73, standing. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase In riches, surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I have been plagued and chastened every morning. 
If I had said, I'll speak like this. Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Oh, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they're brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As in a dream when one awakes. So Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus, my heart was vexed. And I was grieved in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Oh, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Oh, this psalm speaks out loud. The blunt question that every Christian is going to wrestle with at some point in their life. And we already established last week, don't make the mistake of saying, yeah, every Christian probably will. When they're a baby Christian, they don't know their Bibles well enough. Did we say this is baby Christian or seasoned Christian writing this way? Ah, yeah. Asaph is not a baby Christian. He says out loud the blunt question that every Christian is going to wrestle with at some point in their life. Is following God worth it? Or to ask it another way, is God really good to those who follow him or not? And the reason I've given two weeks to dig into this chapter is because I believe there are places where you find, ooh, that person has stated the problem so well. Oh my goodness, I can relate. We got more than that going on here. The reason I gave two weeks to digging into this is this chapter does not just state the problem well, but gives us the answer and a way out. And so last week I began to show you what I said I think are four steps. Four steps you can find in Psalm 73 that arm us with everything we need to work our way through this question in a biblical way. See, everybody's going to work their way through it because you're not an aardvark or an anteater or a golden retriever or a houseplant. You don't just say, oh, my life is really hard. Whatever. No, not whatever. We are interpreters. 
And so we say, well, I know this, and I know this, and I was told this, and I thought I believed this, but I'm experiencing this. I got to make sense of this. We're not satisfied. Every one of you get this. Don't say, well, I'm no theologian. Every one of you is a theologian. The question is, are you a good one? Are you a biblical one? Asaph shows us how to work through it in a biblical way so that you can come out of the confusion and pain of your emotions back into trusting and resting in God. So let's review. Step number one last week we said, oh my goodness, the way out of this doesn't even begin until you admit your doubt. You don't have to keep pretending and saying, but this would sound so ugly. I guess I'm the only one. No other Christian thinks this way. I shouldn't think this way. I shouldn't feel this way. Admit it. Step number one, admit your doubt. And then don't wait to start to unpack it. Because it always involves more than just an intellectual problem. Asaph didn't write this because he had sat around with some friends debating and chewing on this question of evil and suffering in the world and good God. How do we put those two things together? Oh no. We saw last week there were three things going on in his life that are the same three things that derail us and put us in these same positions. He got to this painful and confusing emotional boiling point because of three things that we still run into. Something he saw all around him. He's seeing the prosperity of the wicked and those who do not honor God or even try to please God, and yet they do well. Sometimes they do better than those who are trying to follow God. Huh? But there's more. It was also because he was in the middle of going through something painfully and personally, it's always personal. It's never just academic. It's personal. He's in the middle. We don't know what, but he says, all day long, I've been plagued and they have it so good. Something personal that was unrelenting, that just wasn't letting up, that was hard. And thirdly, we saw it was because of something that was raging in his heart more than just sorrow and pain. And it always is. Because we're sinners, there's always the additional mix of our own sin that we bring to the equation that sometimes makes it even worse. He was envious of the wicked. So step number one, admit it and start to unpack it. Step number two is very contrary to what your flesh would say do. When you hit these kind of points, your feelings and your flesh are going to say, Woo, don't go to church, don't go to small group. Pull back, pull back, pull back, pull back. Stop serving, stop teaching children, stop handing out bulletins, stop, stop helping a next door neighbor. Stop, 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 shut it all down. So that you can just curl up and think about this nonstop. We think that will help. Oh, well, until I get this sorted out, I'm not gonna. Oh my goodness, that's such a bad idea. Step number two, we said, refuse the urge to isolate yourself, but instead move closer to God and to God's people. And we saw how verse 17, I said, is the turning point in this whole chapter. Look at verse 17 again. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood. I told you, we're not talking about find a grassy field, get quiet and think God's thoughts. Can God meet you in a grassy field? 
Yes, you don't have to come to this building to find God. Praise God. But folks, that doesn't mean what so many Americans can be guilty of. And therefore, I don't need the local church. Ha! I've got Jesus. I've got the Holy Spirit. I've got a field. Uh, listen to me. There's a reason we come together. He's talking about he came together with the people of God corporately for worship. And in that context, in that moment, in that setting... He understood something better. See, and notice it didn't start with a feeling. He doesn't say, I felt something right there in Sunday worship. No, he thought something. He thought something. Until you think anything new, you won't feel anything new. Our thoughts feed our feelings. Then I understood there was something he began to understand better. And listen to me. It happened in the context of sanctuary, people of God, corporate. And here's what I would impress to you. If you go to a good sanctuary, and you do, you're right here. It's not a perfect one, but when I, what I mean by good is... When you come together with the people of God, it ought to be more than just some inspirational ditty, your best life now, how you can be successful now. It ought to be a place where you're caused to see bigger. Folks, little little insight here. If this is your best life now, it means you're going to hell. Those are the only people that for them, this is their best life now. No way, read your Bible. I don't see the Bible writer saying, this is my best life now. Yikes. When you come together to the sanctuary, it ought to be a place that one more time you're reminded, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's more than just right here, right now. There's something more that's actually more significant than what seems to suck me down like a magnet to right here, right now. What the world screams about and chases after and advertises and it's just relentless, but oh, it's like your head comes up out of the water like, oh, but there's more. That's what happens in a good place. Of worship, which is why you shouldn't say, Oh, but I'm hurting my marriage right now, and they're not preaching or teaching on marriage. Why should I go? My answer, shut up. No, (laughs) my answer, you need to go to be reminded of something bigger, something more. There's more than just that toddler that's out of control, there's more than just the finances that aren't what you wish, there's more than just that bad marriage. You may get some help on those things because Bible has some help on those. But there's something else you need even more than that. The big picture, the big picture, the big picture. So that's step number three that I want to give you is you have got to take a giant step back from your immediate circumstances so that you can see yourself and God in light of something bigger, bigger, bigger. You say, okay, Brad, but how do I do that? How do you take a giant step back to see something bigger? Well, step three is also captured in verse 17. Verse 17 is a little verse with huge implications. We're going to tease out another entire main point just from verse 17. Verse 17 is how you take a giant step back, my friends. Because notice what he says. He says, then I understood there, say it, say it again, end, let's be careful, notice he doesn't say, oh, I get it now, all those nice cars and houses and stuff that they have, 
That's not really that helpful in this life. Oh, being cancer-free and having healthy babies and having power and success and influence is not that much fun in this life. That's not what he says. That's not what he says because that's not what he sees because that's not where he's looking anymore. Then I understood there and when you go into the sanctuary, God helps you to look beyond right here, right now, beyond the immediate. And then he understood their end. He understood their end, not this present moment, not the immediate circumstances, but their end is what was in view now for him. Listen to me. What happened in the sanctuary is that he's gone from seeing the prosperity of the wicked now to seeing the destruction of the wicked then. And to do that, you can only do that from a higher vantage point. You can only do that from a higher vantage point. So you got to get out of the ditch of your immediate circumstances and out of the craggy ravine of your sorrow. Sorrow can drop you down into a narrow, dark, craggy ravine. You got to get out of the ditch of your immediate circumstances, up out of the craggy ravine of your sorrow and up onto some higher ground. Listen, whenever you feel like Asaph and you're getting mad at God and confused about God, And overwhelmed by all the injustices in your life and the lives of those that you love. And you think God is not good and doesn't know what he's doing. Then one thing we know. Without my knowing any more of the particulars of your circumstance or your pain. One thing we know. You're in too close. You're in too close. You've lost sight of the big picture. I say it all the time here, right? Our enemy Satan in your flesh loves to shrink your world down to the size of your immediate greatest problem. And like cellophane, just wrap it tight. The winds of grace can't get in there. The voice of another brother or sister can't get in there. Why? You're not going to small group anymore. I'm too sad. I don't want to be around anybody that might be happy. I'm not going to worship because I don't feel like singing. Oh, my goodness. You'll suffocate in there spiritually. One thing we know, when you start talking this way, I'm mad at God. I'm confused. If this is so unjust, you're in too close. I know it seems counterintuitive. You think, well, I know my pain. I know my suffering. I'm seeing it up close more than anybody else. I know it. That's part of the problem. I don't feel like anybody else understands what I'm really going through. Let me help you for just a minute. Up close does not always mean greater clarity. Up close can be really blurry and confusing and misleading. You say, Brad, how do you know? Because I'm 54. And people in my house are always putting things right in my face. Dad, look at this. I can't. I can't. I need you to stand on the other side of the kitchen and hold that up. Perfect clarity now. You got it in my face. I I kid you not. Last seven years, I've been like pushing things. Dad, look at this. I'd like to. I need you to go way back. 
I can't see things up close. It's blurry, it's misleading, it's confusing. I've got to push it away and actually step back from it to see it clearly. He got the big picture again because he had lost sight of the big picture because he's now talking about life after this one. You see, Brian, how do you know? How are you sure he's talking about life after this one? Because he begins to unpack in greater detail in verses 18 and 19 what their end looks like. And it's nothing like what they got going on now. Look at verse 18 and 19 again. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. If you're here and you're a child of God, you're a Christian, you've put your trust in Christ. I don't know what you might be going through right now, but verses 18 and 19 sound a lot worse to me. You understand what's being expressed in verses 18 and 19? He is talking about God himself setting them in slippery places. God himself casting them down to destruction. God himself bringing them to desolation. And the word desolation means to be destroyed or ruined as a result of being abandoned or forsaken completely. And I hope there's a distinction jumping to your mind right now about Christians and unbelievers. Can a child of God ever be abandoned or forsaken for completely? But stay with me. Can you feel like it? Louder. Don't be afraid. Yes. Oh my goodness, yes, you can say, my feelings are screaming, I'm orphaned, I'm abandoned, I'm forsaken. Oh, he didn't say you'd never feel it, but you will never live through it. And my friends, there is an infinite difference between feeling abandoned by God and living through it. He says, those that don't know the Lord, unbelievers, those who have refused to accept the mercy that's found in Jesus today will live through desolation, being completely abandoned and forsaken by God. And if that's not bad enough, it says God will utterly consume them with terror. Whew. I, I'm, as a child of God right now, you may be facing fears because of your circumstances or other people around you and what they're doing to you or not doing. But nobody in this room yet, unbeliever or believer, nobody in this room yet knows what it's like to be utterly consumed by the terror of the Lord. But that's what's coming for those who do not know him. And verse 20 is a little hard to understand. Even in the original Hebrew, as you dig into it, it can be confusing. 
but at least grab hold of this. The word dream is used in verse 20. Look at it again. As a dream when one awakes. Here's what I think he's saying. What has seemed so real and so loud and so all-consuming that the world has chased after and even God's people at times have been guilty of envying and wanting for themselves will all be seen for what it really is. Just a dream. Just a mist. While the reality of God and God's kingdom will explode with truth and justice forever. Let me help you here. You feel like you haven't gotten enough of the American dream? I'm not experiencing the American dream. Let me encourage you. Consider this. That's all it ever was. A dream. A mist. A vapor. Get this. I believe he's telling us in verse 20. The day is coming sooner than you realize that we will, we will all struggle to even remember this that seems so real. As a dream when one awakes. Think about this. Assume you've all dreamed. When you wake up, how long? In most cases, there's some exceptions. But for me, and I find what others, how long can you hold on to what, what, what that dream was about? It's like you feel it slipping away. You're like, oh, it seems so real. And I wake up and I think... Oh my goodness, uh, Frank Zitzman and Karen Mason and three people from our church and then someone from the gym, we were all charging a hill with AK-47s. I know not why. It's just the weirdest thing. I'll tell Vicky, the people that are together, I'm like, that is so weird. Or someone I hadn't thought about in a hundred years from high school is there with someone here from our church and someone from South Carolina. But I find myself saying, but what were we about to, what was going on? It just eludes me like a mist. I can't hold on to it for long. Folks, this right now that just seems so real, you will struggle to even remember. The American dream is a dream. And what God promises for his children and God's kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth and King Jesus seated on his throne, ruling and reigning and bringing justice and making all things right and lifting the curse of sin because he paid for it on the cross will be established forever in living color. And imagine this, we do experience moments of pleasure in this life. Imagine being in a place where every moment and every day is better than the last. Each new chapter is better. Oh, but there's more. Oh, but there's more. Oh, but there's more. Oh, but there's more. And it never ends. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. When the trumpet sounds. So here's the real question, right? How do you keep this big? So right now, I hope some of you are like, I'm feeling it. I'm encouraged. But you're going to leave here. We can't stay in the sanctuary forever, right? You got to go to a real job. You got to go back to a real marriage, a real roommate, real troubles, real problems. You have to get tangled up to some degree in the mess of this fallen, broken world right now. How do you keep this big perspective alive? Well, let me illustrate it for you this way. One of my all-time favorite cities to visit is New York City. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't ever want to live there. 
You could give me a free apartment and I wouldn't live there. Don't ever want to live there. But I love to visit that place. Oh, my goodness. Because there's so much to see and taste and do and experience. It's unbelievable. So alive. So much culture and so much food. But if you've ever been to New York City, then you know. What we actually did those first couple times that we visited as a family is spend a little bit of time sightseeing in between times of being completely lost. (laughs) On foot, down in the streets, with masses of humanity pressed up against you. I smell their breath and deodorant or not deodorant and English or not English. I mean, humanity is pressed up against you. Skyscrapers are looming over you and every person that owns a car is honking their horn. It's like sensory overload if there ever was one. And so for what, what it's worth, consider this. When you're down in the streets, It is actually one of the worst perspectives for understanding where you are and what is really going on. Let me tell you how I know that. I'm terrible directions, you know that. My sweet wife is not. But together with sweet wife, who's like a GPS on legs, (laughs) we went all the way around a city block and found ourselves standing on the corner where we started. That is so disheartening. New York City block is long. It takes long. It took us about 30 minutes to do that. Navigating crosswalks and horns and cars and noise. I'm pushing a stroller and trying to arrive with all the children we birthed. Hoping we all still be together. And all of a sudden we realize, this is where we started. So disheartening. We were no closer to where we were trying to get than 30 minutes prior. How could that happen? You said, but you're right there. That's when you can see it most clearly. Wrong. So let me tell you, let me tell you the turning point for me. The aha, game-changing moment. See, because just like the psalmist Asaph, listen, you can get lost in the painful details of your life. With your nose pressed down into the noisy streets of your immediate circumstances and the skyscrapers of your fears looming over you. And the noise of your emotions honking at you constantly until you feel raw and on edge. But it's because of your low vantage point. You need a bigger picture. So that moment of clarity for me regarding New York City. I'm still not good with directions, but listen to me. I was never as confused or lost again was when I found myself standing on the observation deck of the Empire State Building where I could see for 80 miles in all directions. I kid you not, I'll never forget because I'd been so distraught down there and angry. (laughs) It's hot down there too, sweltering hot. This is July in the streets of New York. I looked, and I still remember thinking, oh, my word, it all looks so orderly. It looked like graph paper. It looked like someone intelligent and intelligently and intentionally had designed this. And it wasn't just chaos, because someone did. I could see all five boroughs. I could see the Manhattan Bridge 
the Brooklyn Bridge, the Verrazano, and for the first time ever, it started to make sense how it all connected. But that happened 86 stories up from a higher vantage point. Down in the streets is where I was confused and fearful and angry. Oh, man, I remember one morning I was so angry. Just confession here. You know how you have those terrible dad moments? Children still remember it. You hope they'll remember some good things, but they'll never forget this. The other day they said, oh, you remember that? We were all in the car with our window, faces pressed up, and we saw you. (laughs) We had left early from my friend's house in Queens to beat the line for the Empire State Building, no, for the Statue of Liberty. We broke down in our, our Navy Taurus station wagon on one of those bridges. In 7 a.m. rush hour New York City traffic. Okay? What do you do? I get out of the car. It's like seven lanes on this bridge. I see this little building with glass and a man in it. I think, okay. I start trying to dodge traffic and work my way over to his building. I thought he was waving at me saying, hello. Sorry this happened to you. When I got crossed three lanes, I realized he's saying, go back. And I think he's using the F word. He's saying, go back, you effing idiot. Get in your car. I'm like, oh, he's not happy. He's not helpful. So then I sat there and somehow he communicated to me, we're sending help. Well, okay, he's concerned about my well-being. The wrecker arrives. I was like, oh, there is a God. The wrecker arrives, pulls us off the bridge. And I step out to converse with this man. I start to tell him the address of my friend and where I need him to take me. Because, of course, I want to use a mechanic that my friend knows in Queens. Not with a Kentucky tag. Go to some mechanic right there in Manhattan and have him stick it to me. He says, buddy, we don't take you anywhere. I just get you out of the way and off the bridge. (sighs) Gets worse. (laughs) We have AAA because Vicky always says, oh, I want to have AAA for an emergency. We got to have AAA. I'm like, whatever. So we have AAA. I call AAA. I want them to take me to Queens to my friend's neighborhood to use his mechanic. They won't. You can only be taken so far. I forget what it was, but we need to take our Navy Taurus with a Kentucky tag to some mechanic right there. I stomp around to the back of the Taurus and I start tearing the the AAA sticker off and throwing it on the ground. (laughs) Children are pressed up. Oh, daddy's really mad. Yeah, daddy's mad. I'm thinking we paid all those premiums every year and now I need you. I need you, AAA. You failed me in my time of need. <laughs> We've got to have a bigger picture. So here's the real question then, right? Say, Brad, fine. That's a nice story how you understood New York City better. Stay with me. So what is the spiritual observation deck for Christians that helps us keep the bigger perspective from a higher vantage point. Say it. The Bible. Friends, listen to me. I don't read my Bible every day to just get more information. I've got plenty to chew on. I've read the whole thing multiple times for almost 15 years now. All the way. Genesis 1-1 to Revelation. 
I'm not reading every day just to get more information. I've got plenty to chew on. What keeps me reading this every day? I have to have the elevator of God's spirit use his word to take me back up to the spiritual observation deck of eternity because it only takes me 24 hours in this fallen, broken world to once again be confused and have doubts and get afraid and be angry by what is going on. I need it every day to help me get a bigger, higher vantage point. This will do that. This will do that. Oh, oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's God's word that lifts me out of the streets and sometimes even the gutter and says to me, look at the end. Look at the end. It's not just chaos. Get the big view and look who is ruling and reigning over it all. There's someone intelligent and intentional with a plan. It's not random. It's not chaos. There's a sovereign, loving, wise, good God in control and on his throne over all of history, including your zip code right now. And he's promised to work all things together for good to his children And there's a holy God who has promised to make all things right. Because you're created in his image, there is this sense of make things right. I wish someone would make things right. It doesn't seem right. This is unjust. He's promised to make all things right. Right. And so don't make the mistake the wicked make in verse 11. Do you see what they were saying? Don't make that mistake. Look at verse 11. And they say, how does God know? How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Woo, listen to me. God absolutely does know. He sees it all and he's going to make all things right, which includes bringing judgment to those who do not accept his mercy in his son Jesus now. Oh, listen to me. You can either have Jesus as your savior now or you will face him as your judge then. Today, today is the day of salvation. Today, come to Christ. I want you to turn to Revelation 6, and as you do, I want you to actually know, don't mistake what I'm feeling as I take us here. I actually want you to know I have been troubled and uneasy throughout the weekend just thinking about reading this to you. So I don't want you to think, oh, he takes great pleasure in reading this. But I do read it because I have to stay faithful to all of God's word. And I love you enough that I don't want you to be deceived and not know what is coming if you do not know Jesus. If you have not put your trust in him. If you have not taken him as your savior now. You'll face him as your judge then. Look what it says in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 12. I looked. When he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Oh, look at this, verse 15. And the king's of the earth, the great men, the rich men, 
the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man. Do you see what just happened? The playing field was just made completely level. All those people that have so much power and influence way above us, all those people that have so much money and good stuff and pleasure, that is no longer the case and matters not at all. It's now all kings, all rich men and women, all the mighty men and women, right there with slaves. And they hid themselves. Whether you're rich, powerful, successful, or poor, they'll be hiding in the same cave with a poor man that they look down on in this life. They hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the, this may surprise you, wrath of the Lamb. That same one who came as humble, gentle, baby, born in a manger, savior, meek and mild, saying, come to me. Without respecter of person today, come. The the lamb is going to actually in that day be filled with wrath against all those who did not receive the free offer that he paid for. And you had all of this life to respond. That's why Paul said in Romans, today, if you hear my voice, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't delay. This is a dream. This is a mist. This is so temporary. It's all going to end. Are you ready for that day to stand before the Lamb for the great day of His wrath as, has come and who is able to stand? Your money won't help you in that moment. Your success and influence and power, everything you've accumulated won't help you in that moment. No one will be able to stand except those who have put their trust in Christ. See, get this, child of God. In this life right now, no doubt, in this life right now, you might experience persecution. He never said you wouldn't. You might suffer greatly. He didn't say you wouldn't. Your trials and pain in this life can be dark. He didn't say they wouldn't be. But you will never experience the wrath of the Lamb because He absorbed it for you in your place on the cross when the wrath of God and your sins were put on Him and He drank the cup of God's wrath dry for you. You may suffer in this life, but you'll never be consumed by the terror of the Lord and experience the wrath of the Lamb. Never. But listen to me, unbeliever here today. This life is just a dream. It's a mist. Everything the world shouts about and chases after is going to disappear in a moment. And you're going to come up empty if this is all you've been living for. But it's worse than that. You're not just going to come up empty. You will also face the judgment and wrath of the Lamb without a Savior. Accept Him as your Savior today. Or face Him as your judge on that day. 
Quickly, let me give you a final step. You got to ask yourself the ultimate heart question. Do you realize this chapter gives us the ultimate heart question? We got it in this chapter. Look at, look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none that I desire upon earth besides you. Do you understand the question he's asking and what he's really pondering here? Asaph realizes that when he was mad at God and gripped with fear and angry and confused and filled with doubts, part of what the problem was is he was wanting something in this life more than he wanted God. It always comes down to that, folks. And the Bible gives us a word for that. What's the word the Bible uses for wanting something else in this life more than God? Even if it's a good thing. Godly kids, my marriage, my... And building your life and your identity and your whole world around something else. And trying to place your hopes in and get secure and satisfied by something else. What is the word for that condition? Idolatry. And so that's what he touches on in verse 27. Look at what he says. Verse 27. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Stay with me. The Bible uses the word harlotry throughout the scriptures as a metaphor for idolatry. Sexual unfaithfulness. If you're here and you're a child of God, listen, you have a bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Stay faithful to him. He is satisfying. He will not fail you. He's preparing a place for you. He's coming back for you. Don't prostitute yourself by chasing after other things in this world and trying to be satisfied. Stay faithful to Jesus. What Asaph realizes is, oh my goodness, I might not always have my health. I might not have success. I might not have children doing everything I wish they would. I might not have all the money that I want, but I always have God. And he's enough. Not, be careful, I have God who I can use to get the things in this life that I want. You can go home and watch that on the Christian cable television. And you can buy some of the best-selling books. And that's all they're doing. Use God to still chase after the same things you wanted before. But now you got God. The king's kids go first class and blah, 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 blah. Name it. Claim it. That is so not in the Bible. I have God. Not for what I can use him to get. But I have God. And he's enough. He'll never leave me. He is, that's why he talks the way he does. He is my portion forever. Whatever you pile up in this life is gonna burn. But when he's your portion and he has given you a spiritual inheritance that can't be shaken or taken from you, that's so much better. I have God. He is my portion. And so as we close, I wanna build on verse 23 as we talk about I have him. This is where we ended last week, but I want to build on it. I want to show you something we can know today as New Testament believers. Covenant of grace, living on this side of the cross and empty tomb. I hope you realize Asaph could only faintly discern from the Old Testament scriptures what we can know so much more clearly. How do I know God holds on to me? How do I know, Brad? How do I know that I won't do something so ugly, say something so awful... That he would let me go. I'll tell you how we know. 
because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. When Jesus cried out from the cross, friends, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying, Father, I can't feel your hand. Where are you? You've let go of me. I've never experienced this before. God the Father turned his back on the Son and let go of him and poured out his wrath on him. He, be, he was made sin for us. He was rejected for us. He was made a curse for us. He was abandoned by God for us. God let go of his Son so that he could lay hold of us forever. That's why Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Oh, listen to this. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Oh, but it's even better. The father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. What's Jesus saying? He's saying this, I have you and God the Father has Jesus and you. You are in the double grip of grace. You're not going anywhere. The world can shout at you and mock you and say, why do you serve God? Look, your life isn't even going well. What are you thinking? Your emotions can scream like a honking New York taxi and your circumstances can get painful and dark, but he will Hold you fast and receive you to glory. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us places in the scripture that are messy, that are raw, because we find ourselves saying, me too, me too. And thank you for not just giving us the rawness, but showing us the way out. And then today, thank you for giving us your spirit to help us understand the path out and how to process and work. And then giving us each other that when we come into the sanctuary, we have the help of each other, holding on to each other, encouraging each other, and all the more so as you see the day approaching. Oh God, thank you for who you are, what you've done, and what you are doing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.